Well, I'll invite you at this time to turn with me, not to Genesis, but to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So we're going to take one more week off of Genesis, and we'll return to it next Sunday, Lord willing. Uh, But today I want us to consider 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and particularly verse 7. Uh, We're going to read a little more than that. We'll read uh, beginning in verse 1, so we have some of the context. But as we read through this, Take note of verse 7. Uh, this is the verse to which we will return and, and spend our time. So let's, let's begin, though, reading in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. And we'll read through to verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes, This is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. These verses are written in somewhat of a combative tone. Paul is actually quite sarcastic there in verses 8 to 13 as he's writing to the Corinthians. But he does reveal to us what his heart is, what his motivation is there in verse 14. He's writing them not to just rip them and, 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 uh, and leave them ashamed, but he's writing them to admonish them as his beloved children. That's the reason he's speaking and, and or writing in what is a rather combative manner and somewhat harsh and certainly a sarcastic tone there in verses 8 to 13. Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church. 
But my intention as we come to verse 7 today is not to come to you with that kind of a sarcastic or uh, combative tone or spirit. Uh, I was thinking about this verse over the last several weeks, and there's a number of reasons why I wanted to take a Sunday and just preach on verse 7. One of the reasons for this is just in thinking about, over the last, again, several weeks, the appropriate way to celebrate 10 years as a church. Uh, The last thing that I would want to do is to celebrate in such a way that what we're really doing is celebrating us. Or what we're really doing is celebrating the things that we have done and what we have accomplished and all that we are. And I would hate to even give that impression mistakenly that that's what we're doing if someone was looking on or or knew or wondering. Uh, There is something known as a humble brag where you're, you know, I'm just so thankful that I'm the greatest at X or Y. Uh, that, That kind of thing does occur and we wouldn't want to do that. Well, you know, we're so grateful that we're such a wonderful people. You know, we would not want to, to come across that way or, or, or have an attitude like that. And yet, clearly, clearly, it is right and it is good to celebrate God's faithfulness, to worship Him, and to thank Him for the good gifts that He gives to us, to His people. And I would count church life and this church among the most blessed gifts in this life that we possess. So as I've you know, been thinking about this over the last few weeks, this verse, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, has kept coming to mind. And particularly the last two questions in verse 7, where it says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And if we would hear these words and receive these words, to believe the truth in them, then they will give us a key to celebrating all of the good things that we possess with a true and proper and God-honoring humility. Obviously, this applies to much more than just celebrating a a 10-year anniversary as a church. It teaches that all of the good that you have is ultimately a gift from God given to you out of his kindness to you. And that the appropriate result of that then, of understanding that reality, is humility before God and thankfulness to him. There is much fuel here for thankfulness, for humility, for an appropriate lowliness before the Lord that will serve us in all aspects of life. And so let's dig into this verse a little further. There's just two points to our outline today. The first is know the extent of God's kindness to you. Know the extent of God's kindness to you. And secondly, consider your response to this. Know the extent of God's kindness And consider your response to this. So, first of all, know the extent of God's kindness to you. When we consider God's mercies, His goodness, His kindness to us, there can sometimes be a tendency, and it's maybe sometimes implicit, it's not a conscious thing, but there can be a tendency to underestimate just how kind and gracious God has been to us. We might acknowledge His Merciful gifts to us in certain areas, 
like salvation and the forgiveness of sins. I sure hope uh, at this point we recognize that as a gift that is totally unearned by us and completely undeserved. That is purely out of God's free kindness we receive with empty hands by believing in Christ and nothing more. We can recognize, well, clearly that is a mercy God has shown us. But there are other things, other blessings that we receive that maybe we don't always attribute to God's kindness and and gifts to us. In some aspects of life, we can think that the good things that we possess are really or simply the result of our own ingenuity, the result of our own hard work. Maybe it's the result of our own inherent worth. Sure, we might recognize that maybe God helped us out here, but maybe it's because I kind of deserved this. And this text, I think, along with the rest of Scripture, consistent with what we find elsewhere in the Bible, blows the lid off of this kind of thinking or this kind of pride. So I want to look at verse 7 here, but before we dive into that, just a little bit of context. The Corinthian church, if you recall, was something of a small disaster. Uh, There were lots of significant problems, which just as an aside, should encourage us that they're not totally just written off by Paul. He rebukes them, he corrects them, but they're still beloved in his eyes. Uh, So that's an encouragement to us, even as we struggle along and, and, and become aware of our own failings as individuals and as a church. There were problems in this church. They had issues, some rather significant ones. And these issues included pride, and division that resulted from this pride. You probably remember that there were those who said they followed Paul, others followed Apollos. They're lining up behind their favorite preacher, their favorite apostle. They follow after him. This one's better than that one, etc. And at the start of chapter 4, as we read, Paul tells them the proper way they ought to view him and Apollos. He says, they ought to, you ought to view us as stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the gospel is what that is, the mysteries of God, the, the gospel message. So one of them might sow the seed and go preach and be the first one to preach. Another might come along and water that seed later and continuing to preach the word of God. But as he said back in chapter 3, verse 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Paul's saying, we're, Apollos, me, Peter, whoever it is, we're on the same side here. One might come along and plant, another preaches, and that, that seed grows and takes root. And none of us matter, but only God who gives the growth. He's the one to be praised. These men are on the same side, and they're laboring before the Lord. They're seeking His commendation. They're merely stewards of something that God has given to them for a time and entrusted to them. And then in chapter 4, verse 6 here, Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. The Corinthians are being arrogant, puffed up, And then they're being divisive in their own midst with one another, favoring one over the other, and in their choice of preachers. 
And Paul's using his, himself and Apollos as an example for them to emulate. Again, their arrogance is not just over their choice of leaders, whether it's Apollos or Paul, but it extends to preferences within the church itself. There's division within their own church. At the Lord's Supper, for example, and we'll look more at this in just a moment, in chapter 11, there, if you remember, they turned this Lord's Supper into a gluttonous and divisive feast where some were there stuffing themselves and even getting drunk, he says, while others were there with no food at all. As I said, there were issues here. And as we read in verses 8 to 13, they, they viewed themselves highly. They viewed themselves like kings. They are worthy of great honor. They are strong. They are wise. Right? This is, whether they said that explicitly or not, this was their attitude. This was how they acted. And this pride they possessed was contributing, obviously, makes sense, to their divisive ways. They're puffed up. They believe themselves really to be something. In verse 7, there are three questions that Paul asks here. The first one is translated in the ESV as for, he says, For who sees anything different in you? What makes you different? More literally, this reads, for who distinguishes you? Who distinguishes you? He's talking about him and Paul, and they're just on the same playing field here, seeking to serve the Lord, steward the mysteries of God. But who distinguishes you? It's a little bit difficult to know precisely what Paul means by this question, but it seems to be asking, who distinguishes you above others? When Peter, if you remember from Acts 10 and 11, when he was told by the Spirit of God to go to the Gentiles and to bring the good news to them, the Spirit told Peter to go, making no distinction. That word distinction is the same Greek word that is used here. Peter was to go not elevating himself and, 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 and looking down upon these Gentiles. Make no distinction. Equal playing field here. That's what that is saying. But here in Corinth, these people have made a distinction. They are up here. They are high. They are kings. They are above. They are in a position to pass judgment upon the Apostle Paul and Apollos and all of these others and those within their midst. Who makes a distinction among you that you're better than others? That's what I think Paul is asking. It has the ring of who do you think you are? Why would you be above Apollos? Why would you be above other apostles like Paul, who are mere stewards, lowly servants of the Lord, seeking God's approval ultimately, not, even, not passing harsh judgment upon one another? The Corinthians are being carnal in their arrogant behavior. And the, the question that Paul asks here is rhetorical. Who distinguishes you? You're, you're not above the others, is what he's saying. And then we get to the second question. And I want to focus a little more on this one. He asks, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? 
This is also a rhetorical question. And the answer to that is nothing. You have nothing that you have not received. And the implication, of course, is they've received this from God. He asks this in a general way. And I think Paul really is referring to everything good that they possess. Everything they would be tempted to point to to show their own superiority and greatness. Whatever it might be. What do you have? What are you pointing to that you haven't received? This would include their spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. That is their salvation. Whatever spiritual gifts they might have. Whatever insight into the truths of God's word. This would also include whatever material blessings that they might possess. Their arrogance, again, and their pride extended to both areas. And Paul is reminding them that all you possess, all that you are tempted to be proud of, is actually graciously and kindly given to you by God and his providence and his kindness to you. They were proud of their spiritual status. They were exalting certain teachers and denigrating others. No, Apollos is the man. Paul, eh. We see it throughout both letters to the Corinthians that we have in Scripture. Paul being maligned and undermined in that church. Again, Paul and the other apostles, they're lowly, he says. They're despised. They're all laboring for the same cause. But the Corinthians, well... They view their spiritual status and their gifts, their skills, their place in life, all that they have as a sign of just how great they are. They're in a position to rightly pass judgment upon the Apostle Paul, Peter, and whoever else it might be. What do you have that you did not receive? If you receive something as a gift that you've done nothing to earn, It's folly to boast in that thing. But that's precisely what they were doing. Paul came out right at the start of this letter to this church, warning against this, teaching against this. In chapter 1 and verse 30, he says, And because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that it, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul, right at the start of the letter, says, because of what God has done for you, you are in Christ Jesus. And he has become to you your redemption, your sanctification, your righteousness, so that you have nothing to boast of except to boast in what God has done for you. Further, any spiritual gifting that the church possessed, that the individuals possessed, we know likewise this comes from Christ. It's called gift for a reason. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're told that it was Christ who gave gifts to men, that gave gifts to his church, that is, for the work of ministry. Again, key word there, he gave those gifts to the church. Paul and Apollos and any other teacher in his right mind would not brag about his gift, but simply try as best he can to steward it and exercise it to the glory of God, which is precisely what Paul says at the start of chapter 4 here in verses 
2 to 5. They're ultimately seeking commendation from God, not one another, nor even the Corinthian church. There's nothing to boast of in the spiritual blessings that they had received except God and his graciousness to them. The question that Paul asks here, what do you have that you did not receive? It extends further than these spiritual blessings in Christ as well to all of their blessings. Again, many of the wealthier Corinthians had vaunted their wealth and all that they have over the poor. Again, we see this in their aberrant behavior around the Lord's Supper. Chapter 11, verse 20, we read, When you come together, Paul says, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You call it that, it's not that. Why? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. This was not the Lord's Supper. They called it that, but it wasn't. Rather, it was a despising of God's church. It was pride among those who had. Again, the question raised in chapter 4, verse 7 here is, as Matthew Henry calls it, a general maxim, a general statement. That is, that there's nothing we have that we can properly call our own. All is received from God. This is the teaching of the Bible. God is sovereign, and he rules over his creation, such that his providence... That's what his rule is, his governing of creation. That's what providence is. His providence reaches, as our Lord told us, even to the insignificant birds of the air. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Maybe you picked this up as we were reading from 1 Chronicles 29 in the words of David. He says, but who am I and what is my people? That we should be able to thus offer willingly, for all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. It's it's yours to begin with. We're just giving what is really yours, he's saying. And he continues, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house and for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. David is not insulting those who maybe worked hard, ran a good business and received wealth because of that, and we're now offering this to to the Lord and for the temple's construction. But David's recognizing that behind all of that, however they've come by this wealth, recognizing that God is the one who owns all of this and who has given this to his people, and they're just giving it back to him, essentially. It's all rightly his. The Bible affirms, of course, that God does work through secondary means. God does provide for us. It's right when we sit down and pray before we eat that we thank God for this food. But I can remember 
a long time ago thinking about that and thinking, well, you know, we went and worked and earned a wage and somebody paid us. And then we went to the store where someone had worked hard to bring that food to the store. And then we paid them the food. It was a transaction. We took the food home, prepared it and made it. And it sort of seems like a closed loop and a closed system. And where was God in the midst of this? Farmers do sow fields, and eventually that gets turned into bread, shows up in our stores, and we buy it. But God is at work through these secondary means to provide for you and for me. He uses means to provide for his people. He doesn't just immediately, you know, we don't just sit there and spaghetti shows up on our plate. Nevertheless, that food that we have is ultimately, behind it all, provided to us by God. He uses means to accomplish this, this ordinary working that we see in the world. Likewise, through natural processes and cycles. The Bible says that God sends his reign on the just and the unjust alike. Well, how does he do that? We know he uses Natural cycles. There is evaporation and eventually that water will fall back to earth. But behind all of that, God is sending it. And if he so determined and decided, he would withhold it for however long he wanted. And we wouldn't have that nice crop. It's not simply natural cycles. God rules over this world, often using means to accomplish that. Secondary means to accomplish his rule and his governance. Furthermore, the Bible affirms that a man who works hard will often receive a reward for that labor in this lifetime. And it warns, on the contrary, that the lazy man should not expect to see good things in this life if he's not willing to work. If you read the book of Proverbs, you see these kinds of things all over Proverbs. As one example, in chapter 10, verse 4, a slack hand causes poverty. There is cause and effect within God's world that he rules over. If you're lazy and slack, there's going to be poverty there. You should expect that. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. God's providence, his provision is not a reason for us to just simply lay here and sit here expecting everything to just be dropped into our lap. You remember even Paul's warning in 2 Thessalonians that if a man's not willing to work, then he should not eat. And yet, we also know from Scripture, we've seen it in Ecclesiastes, and we've maybe experienced this, that it doesn't always work out that way. You can't simply look at somebody's bank account and then just rank who has worked harder than somebody else. Ecclesiastes 9.11 says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Sometimes the hardworking man faces a debilitating illness and he can't work anymore. Other times, the lazy, wicked man inherits all kinds of stuff. My point here is that even in our earthly dealings, 
We can look back on decisions that we've made. Maybe they were good decisions. Maybe it was hard work that that paid off. But as Christians, there is this recognition that behind all of that, God has graciously and mercifully granted to you that which you have. He has granted it to you that that worked out as it did. There's a recognition we ought to have that it could have been otherwise. And the fact that it isn't otherwise isn't owing to my own intrinsic greatness, but rather to God who, out of his kindness to you, has made it work out well. Why is it that one man dies tragically in a car accident, no longer able to provide for his family, and another man lives a long life? This is the stuff that Ecclesiastes is wrestling with. We recognize that, yes, we plan and we work hard and we do all that we can, but we are dependent upon the Lord to provide and to bless our labors. Spiritual blessings, material blessings. What do you have that you have not received? Remember, he's asking this rhetorically, that if there's a part of you that wants to protest this, you should beware of that, because Paul... The answer is clear to Paul. The Christian view is to understand that even as we go through our days seeking to earn a living, seeking to serve in the Lord's church, even as we're making decisions and we're often laboring over those decisions, that God is ultimately ordering our days by his providence. And so when things work out and we have something We rightly thank Him. We rightly praise Him. It could have been otherwise. But it is the way it is out of God's kindness and goodness, His decision to bless you, to His praise. This has all kinds of application. I started out talking about the church. So with regard to the church, We simply recognize that so far as this church would be a blessing, all the glory goes to the Lord. And we will own all the shortcomings. And God will get all of the glory for any good and all good. Consider that he could have left us in a prolonged season of floundering. But he has given us one another instead. We probably all know people who can't seem to find a decent church within a reasonable driving distance of where they live. And they're not asking for the moon. They're just, can we just open the word and attempt to take it seriously and have some reverence before the Lord and just try to just understand it and believe it and do what it says? And let's extend this to every area of life. What do you have that you have not received? What is it that's most precious to you? That you are so glad you have? Again, even that which you've worked hard for. Praise God that he has blessed the work of your hands. Blessed your efforts. It could have been otherwise. Through all kinds of different ways. 
All kinds of different things could have happened for it to go a different direction. So again, know the extent of God's mercy and kindness to you because it extends to all things. And secondly, consider your response to this. If it is true that all good things have come to you from God Almighty, ultimately, then consider what has been your response. What is the right response? The third question in verse 7 gets to this. It says, if then you received it, so he's, again, assuming the answer is you've received whatever you've got. If that's the case, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The Corinthians are arrogant. They act as if these great things that they have, and they're probably overestimating a lot of it, but they act as if this is intrinsic to them, as if they just did all of this, or they earned, or they obtained some great status before God of their own doing. Even if you have a spiritual gift that is very impressive, where did it come from? If you have an ability to just read the Bible and it sticks with you, and you, just, you, you have a, a natural ability to understand difficult concepts, where does all this come from? Ultimately, God's given this to you. Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Maybe you have a heart for those who are hurting, a gift of mercy. You just long to help somebody or encourage them. <clears throat> Praise God for that. The Corinthians act as if their wealth isn't something that has been granted and given to them by God's decree and permission for them to steward, something to steward. Their sense of superiority allows them to lord it over one another and the poor in their church, stuffing their faces in front of the hungry and getting drunk and then calling that the Lord's Supper. As you consider all the things that have gone well in your life, and we recognize not everything has gone well, we, we know that, but consider your response to those things that have gone well. Has it been a humility before God? Again, recognizing that it could have been otherwise. Or has the thought that you're somehow superior in some way crept in? Has it left you with a, some sense of, a, of self-importance? Again, I think in, in various ways we can all be tempted to that, certainly at times. But the right response to God's kindness is clearly humility, gratitude, thankfulness to God, praising Him, worshiping Him. Now, I want to note that the right response here isn't to feel guilty about the ways God has blessed you. Sometimes that happens. Oh, you have so much, and oh, you haven't thanked God enough, and oh, you're horrible for it, and so on, and just, oh, I just feel guilty because the Lord has blessed me with things. That's not... What I'm saying, and I don't think that's even what the Bible teaches. If you've got what you have through its ill-gotten gain, certainly that's something to repent of and, and make that right. But if the Lord has blessed you, and you're something good that you have, you give Him thanks. 
Just praise him for it. You don't have to, I'm not saying feel bad about it. Thank him. Again, rejoicing with the understanding that God could have done otherwise and still have been good. If what we have is a gift from God, then this is, again, the correct response. Humility, thankfulness, worship, prayerfulness, and then seeking to steward those things that he has given to us in a way that would honor him the best of our ability. May God help us to do that. The apostles exhibited humility. They were men of unbelievably great giftings, the likes of which we have not seen since the last apostle died. Able to heal, able to speak prophecies, able to perform various miracles. They were writers of scripture, those who saw the risen Christ. Yet, Paul says, they were exhibited as last of all, like men sentenced to death, Paul lays out this attitude in verses 8 through 13 of chapter 4. Materially, they were without. He says they were poorly dressed, buffeted, and homeless. The wealthy Corinthians would scoff at Paul for this. Very unimpressive man. What does he even have? And yet, if you think about the apostles and their wonderful spiritual giftings, the giftings that Paul himself had, It didn't result in Paul being angry about his low estate. It didn't result in Paul then lording his great spiritual, I may not have much materially, but spiritually, y'all need to just watch your mouth and whatever and, and lord it over them that way. He appeals to them as his beloved children. Paul was not angry about his low estate. He didn't simply write a just devastating letter to the Corinthians to just put them in their place. The apostles viewed themselves simply as servants of Christ Jesus, seeking with the God's help and grace to be faithful to that which he had entrusted to them. Imagine it. You and I, today, with homes, you and I with possessions, while the Apostle Paul, no less, laboring in the cold, shipwrecked, beaten multiple times, the Lord Jesus himself nowhere to lay his head, as he says. And again, I'm not making that comparison so that you'll just simply feel guilty, but so that you'll thank the Lord, understanding his kindness to you, There have been wonderful saints walk this earth who have not possessed the great things that the Lord has given to us even. We have much to be thankful for. Paul knew from where he came and he did not revile his low estate in the world. This is where the spiritual blessings that God gives freely are of the greatest comfort. Paul considered himself the chief of sinners that's his own estimation of himself. He was a persecutor of the church. How do you get worse than that? And yet God had freely of his own choosing and mercy given Paul the forgiveness of his sins, repentance, faith, 
salvation, righteousness imputed to him, sanctification and inheritance awaiting Paul. All of this was his because of God's free grace and mercy to him. And this is how it is for all who believe. We were dead in our trespasses and sins prior to God raising us up from the dead in Christ Jesus. This is what the gospel holds forth to sinners, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, free and full forgiveness and eternal life, not out of anything good in ourselves, but out of the abundant mercy of God to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has died for our sins and risen again from the dead in triumph over those sins. The material blessings that God gives us are to be received with joy and with thanksgiving. But how much more the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus that are eternal things. The material things that God has given to us could be gone in an instant. And they may yet. Hold loosely to those. Make your treasure the God who gave those gifts to you, not the gifts themselves. And then if God ever one day in his providence takes those things away, as he did with Job, you will yet praise him still, declaring him to be blessed, because you will still have him for eternity. Whether we're talking about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ or whether we're talking about the material blessings that he gives to us, whatever they are, recognize that they are given to you ultimately by God and merely received by you from his hand. Let this amaze you that God would be so good as to bless you freely. Let this stir in your soul worship of God And thankfulness to him. This is his kindness to you. And with that in mind, I do give thanks to God for this church. Not because we are so great. Not because we've got everything all figured out. But because God is good to us and has been kind to us. He has blessed us with one another. And may he bless us into the future with greater sanctification, greater heavenly mindedness, with an ever loosening grip on our love of the world, with perseverance in the faith, come what may, with courage and boldness, with renewed vigor to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, with fresh zeal to point sinners to Christ, and of course with humility to receive all things as from his hand, submitted to whatever our God ordains into the future, knowing that ultimately he ordains what is right. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this. Our Heavenly Father, you are good and and we don't know the half of it. Father, how you have answered prayers. How many times have we not even realized that we have asked or someone has asked on our behalf and you've done good to us. 
Father, forgive any pride that we would see in ourselves. Things we've attained, we think we've attained of our own apart from you. Giftings that we think are just inherent to us that make us better than other people. Father, purge those thoughts from us. I pray that we would walk before you in humility. That we would walk before you with thankfulness. God, we so often assume that you must be setting us up for some sort of crushing disappointment if you do good to us. Because we are not as kind as you are. We would expect something in return and be upset if we don't get it. Father, you are... We don't put you into our debt such that you're obligated to work for us. You bless freely such is your love to your people. So we we thank you and praise you. And we know that you do good to all. Father, those who breathe the air that you have created, those who eat of the produce of the land, all receive of your goodness. Father, we do pray that you would grant us great blessings, great spiritual blessings. Father, we are so bold as to ask you for these things. That you would sanctify us, your people. That you'd give us a great longing to seek you and to know you. That we would know that it is better to spend one day with you than many elsewhere or apart from you. Father, we do as your church just give thanks to you for providing for us in so many ways, for doing good to us, for blessing us. We are unworthy people. Father, help us to want to just steward the things you've given to us in a way that would honor you and please you. Father, do whatever you need to do in our hearts that we might respond that way, that we might live that way. We are continually in need of your help and we thank you that you are God who helps so we look to you we thank you we praise you in Jesus name amen